Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992. Here from our perch in 2023, I'm one of your hosts, Phil Gove. And I am your other, I'm, I forgot my line, and I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, uh, sitting in for your regular host, the entire DEA. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's, yeah. a, that's a charge. That was weird. I mean. It was like weird that you did a podcast yeah. with an entire federal I mean, I bureau, so. but yeah. <laughs> Listen, they wanted to come on. What could I say? <laughs> uh, with us today is Robert Daniels, film critic, having written for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Vulture, and IndieWire. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today, Robert. Thank you for having me on, especially to talk about one of my uh, favorite films of all time. This movie like i know phil's gonna do preamble this movie fucking rules it's so good (laughs) it it really is and i feel like and robert you can obviously expound on this far more than i can but like this was a movie that i mean certainly existed but it feels like it's had a real resurgence over the last few years obviously the criterion being sort of the the somewhat pinnacle of that but how did this movie come into your life uh mine specifically um I've always been a big fan of of uh, Bill Duke as a filmmaker. I think Bill Duke is one of the great unheralded filmmakers um, and one of the great like cinematic legends. You know, he, as an actor, of course, he started off. Um, he had his big breakout in film and uh, car wash. So we're you gotta go all the way back to 1976 for Bill Duke. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also love him as a director. Of course, uh, his first film, The Killing Floor, um, about um, uh, uh, integrated union in, in Chicago um, in the early 20th century, uh, a rage in Harlem, just sensual um, kind of um, religious allegory. And then uh, Sister Act Two, which is like one of the great black musicals of all time. Um, and so Deep Cover, um, actually, I didn't, I'd kind of known about the film, but you know, I'd seen a lot of, I think like most people had seen uh a few stills and it did not look great in terms of the color timing in terms of like the quality and i was always like oh no um and then the criterion restoration came out and that's actually how i first watched it um also i think i had read about it funnily enough it when it actually now, now i'm really thinking about it, it really got on my um radar because of um, Michael Boyce Gillespie's film Blackness, that book, um, and he has a whole chapter about Deep Cover, and I remember reading about it in that chapter being like, oh, this sounds like a really interesting movie, and then it just so happened, I think maybe a couple months later after I'd read it, the Criterion Restoration came out, 
And then that became my avenue to see it. And it's such a gorgeous restoration. And it really gets um, Bill Duke's exquisite use of color, especially within um, the noir genre very well. Yeah, it's a beautiful looking movie. I was, I was, I mean, full disclosure, had not seen this film prior to this. Um, when it came out on Criterion and everyone was raving about it, it certainly was like on my radar and I was excited for us to cover it on this. Um, but to your point, there there are several really beautiful sort of neon noirish sequences in this that just the punch of color and, and just beautifully beautifully made but um emily had you had not seen this film either correct no um it was it was not a movie that was on my radar in 1992 um, sure i <laughs> no like uh, i uh i had heard about it when the criterion came out um uh, but i i hadn't yet watched it um it it really like I have a lot of problem with a lot of modern noir. Like I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's like, I'm glad people keep making them, but I have been, uh, I was so impressed with how this hues to the noir like tropes while also like blowing them up and being interested in using them to examine a lot of different, like really weighty topics in a way where you like reach the end of the movie and you're like, Oh yeah. Like I thought about a lot of stuff, but you're never like, it's never like being heavy handed in any way uh, in the way that like a lot of modern noir will be like, and here's how you should feel about police corruption. And you're like, no, absolutely. Yes, okay. But yeah, it's, it's very, um, I was surprised, especially with sort of like the last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, how sort of morally kind of gray the whole thing became. Cause I do think that to your point, Emily, most noir falls into a very kind of like binary good and evil kind of thing. And I do think that this movie, it's just, I mean, the inherent institutions that it's questioning, the various yeah. things that exist, it's, 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 it's really deep, yeah. no pun intended. Yeah. Like, like noir obviously <laughs> plays in gray areas, but it's like, there's always a sense of what pole is good and what pole is bad. And this movie like keeps flipping that. It keeps being like, yeah. you know, um, uh, which what's the right thing to do and there is no right thing to do like most of the time sure. you know the, where this movie leaves uh the stevens character lawrence fishburne's character uh is so uh profound and like just like kind of a, a very yeah. small scale way it's also just really fun yeah <laughs> it's a fun movie yes. i mean i think the, a lot of issues i have with like modern day noir is that it's far too dour Sure. And you really don't get like the snap, the rhythm, the play that you you would you know you would find in like the great noirs of of course the forties and the fifties. Um, and but this one has it, and not only that, I like uh, Emily as you point out that like it really kind of blows up a lot of these tropes and like such a um and such a like a just ecstatic and, and gleeful way. Um, it's there's so many um scenes in this that are literally laugh out loud funny it's just an incredibly engaging entertaining movie with fully realized characters who aren't just you know because like morally gray and the way that they're navigating through the world but like you get the full sense of them the full range of them as humans and from um their desires which are you know nefarious but then i think also like the love that they share among them right this is a film that um has like I think one of the great cinematic bromances between Lawrence Fishburne and, and Jeff Goldblum um and so yeah so I think this is a, a film that you know of course has those noir sensibilities but also um 
has a lot of fun with them and, and plays with them in very interesting ways. Yeah, I, I think it's worth, you know, you, you brought it up, but like Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum, <clears throat> who are basically about to blow up, right? Like their career, they're about to become pretty massive movie stars for, you know, for all intents and purposes. And to see them sort of kind of at the tip of the spear as well, you're starting to get a sense that these two guys know that you can hang a movie on them. I mean, obviously Jeff Goldblum was in The Fly a few years previous, but still like, you know, Lawrence Fishburne is about to become Lawrence Fishburne. He is dropping the Larry Fishburne. This is the last time he's known as that. Uh, but it's, I mean, first of all, Emily texted me this, but it needs to be said, Lawrence Fishburne looks incredible in this movie. He is just like Gorgeous, movie man. star. Yeah. Gorgeous. And <laughs> and I like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I was watching the early part of this movie when he's talking with Charles Martin Smith and being like, he's very attractive. And my wife was watching it with me and she was like, wait till he has facial hair. Cause she had like watched the trailer. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. It really just chisels that jaw when he gets that, uh, that facial hair. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and Goldblum, you know, my big, one of the big things I took away from this film too, was like, I wish Jeff Goldblum did more dramas. Cause like the, the guy's got chops and I feel like, you know, post Jurassic Park, everyone just sort of saw him as like, that's his lane now. And it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, obviously his same, he has that same nervy quality. Yeah. And I looked back at like, there were a lot of negative reviews of this movie at the time. And a lot of them called out his performance as a thing they didn't like in it. Really? They like it, they were like talking about how it feels like a comedic performance, but like, that's what works about it is yeah. it feels like he's like trying to charm you by being kind of like a slick, funny guy, but yeah. like there's, there's a, there's a darkness underneath it uh, that just isn't entirely connecting. Um, yeah. He's uh, uh, I don't have, a, I don't know if I've seen a better Jeff Goldblum performance. Like I love him in the fly. That's like my he's other really good in the fly. Yeah. It's this is, he's, it is interesting what you're saying, uh, Emily, that I think that some people just either couldn't lock into Jeff Goldblum kind of in the back half of this movie when his sort of sadistic darkness starts to really manifest. Um, but I found that really fascinating. I just don't feel like we've seen him do that. I mean, he's just, he's now just kind of very approachable, which is fine. I mean, he's very funny. Don't get me wrong. Um, but this movie shows that like there's there's another gear he could use. Yeah, and I think approachable is a good word because he starts off this movie, I think, being feeling very innocent in some way, right? Because um, Barbosa comes to his door, his what we assume is like a very like um, manicured, suburban, yeah. rich, probably a high, more upper class than suburban, right? Like this very well-to-do neighborhood, and like he's wearing a sweater that's probably like a size too small. <laughs> he's <laughs> desperately trying to cheat his daughter multiplication, and yet yeah. it feels like it's like he's. It doesn't feel like this is his actual family. It feels like he just he kind of like woke up out of a coma and just was stuck with his family. <laughs> like <laughs> it's like in the lobster. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, seriously. But I think the entire time, I mean, like, you know, like, I think the film is playing with that tension very, very early on of like the the two lives that he has and really the, the life that he, I think he gravitates toward and is taken more with, of course, is this seedy underbelly and this like darkness that pervades this other world, this urban world. Um, I mean, I mean, of course, we, we get more about like his, um, 
the way he fetishizes quote unquote the urban right when it comes to like his um sexual proclivity for black women um and not even just like his attraction to black women but his like the way that he exoticizes like even not just like how black women look but even intercourse with black women he sexually um um, exoticizes um and so we yeah you get this like kind of like the the tension that comes between oh should he live this white kind of idyllic suburban life or should he kind of go to his quote-unquote baser instincts right and and go to the more urban side um and the darker kind of elements of his character um and so i I think this film is playing with that tension very very well from the very beginning i um sorry go ahead i i there's like a i mean this is me saying this so uh you should not be surprised there's a queer subtext to this movie um where it is like like the obviously it is a bromance as we said uh, between these two characters but there is always like a weird sexual tension between them where you're like are they going to kiss and there's like a quality to how uh david is jeff goldblum's character there's a quality to how david like exoticizes and fetishizes his partner in a way where you're like oh like he doesn't entirely understand you know his own feelings on all of this um, I kept thinking about one false move watching this because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. another like really good modern noir, uh, also yep. directed by a, a black filmmaker. And what I like about both those films is that in it, there's a main white character, Bill Paxton in that film and Jeff Goldblum in this, who like gets like 50% of the way to understanding the complexities of the situations he's in, but like just cannot look at his complicity in white supremacy basically and therefore like misses the big picture like the scene at the end where uh jeff goldblum's talking about how you know there's no race anymore it's just rich and poor so we're on the same side you're like to some extent like he's talking about the class war in like a way that makes sense but also like you know he's blind if he doesn't think there's no race anymore he can say that because he comes from a place where he's like a white man who can comfortably disappear into his suburban life except he dies so you know spoiler (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well actually i i think that's my favorite line in the entire movie i think about that line every single time someone rich says something absolutely out of touch and stupid and lately actually lately it's been you know like um um uh people of color and even black people who've said wealthy black people you know, like uh say rihanna right who went from this kind of like um this like figure emblematic of like uh um, um uh, charity and and these political causes and then at some point the super bowl ad becomes a um commercial for her brand right and how many i think uh, black pop, pop culture figures have gone from people who kind of rose up as these like radical black figures and now have just become parcels in 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 capitalism and so every single time that happens, I think about that line of like, there is no, there is no white, there's no black, there's no Hispanic, there's just rich and poor. And then at some point you get to this level of rich that not many people get to where you, you have the um, comfort of not having to see race. You only see the bank, the, the numbers at the end of the bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it is sort of, it is fascinating the way that Goldblum perceives the world in a lot of ways and his lack of 
self-understanding to some degree like Emily you were talking about the, the the queer component and this this sort of romance between the two of them but I also couldn't help but feel like Jeff Goldblum or David is just so performative there's so much of like the lady doth protest when he's talking about these sexual situations which feels like this he just he's he's constantly trying to prove himself as though he is um I mean to some degree, obviously, there is the rich element, but also just like the sexual proclivity, the, the the prowess, all these kind of things just feel part and parcel of someone who's desperately trying to 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 overcompensate for something. I mean, you can see the scenes where with Barbosa, where he's, con- you know, the, the, the hand slapping scene and just this constantly feeling as though he's under the thumb of somebody which he can't stand. There's also this. I don't know if it's a self-hatred, but like there is a little bit of the Judaism thing mixed into all of this as well, where like there's this sort of feeling as though he doesn't belong or as though he's lesser than all that kind of stuff is, is playing into it, which is really fascinating. Um, I want to give a little bit of context to this film for the people that have not seen it. I was leaving film. you a gap because I was like, Phil's going to want to give some context. So I was like, <laughs> well, it's, time, that, it's time for the context. Let's hear it. <laughs> uh, David Jason, played by Jeff Goldblum, is one of the biggest drug dealers in Los Angeles. And Russell Stevens, played by Lawrence Fishburne, is an undercover cop who wants to bring him down. Posing as a dealer, Stevens begins to earn the trust of the L.A. drug underworld, eventually making his way to Jason himself. But along the way, he has to take his cover to depths he never thought he would have to see, including selling drugs and going to great lengths to eliminate potential competitors for Jason's drug cartel. Uh, Deep Cover opened on April 17th, 1992 against Basic Instinct, White Men Can't Jump, Beethoven, Sleepwalkers, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. What a murderer's row of movies. It was a different time, Robert. Uh, It would go on to make $16 million on an $8 million budget. It's got 87% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 77% from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars and said, what sets Deep Cover apart is its sense of good and evil, the way it has Fishburne's character agonize over the moral decisions he has to make. Most drug movies are so casual about their shootings and killings that you hardly think it even hurt to get shot. Fishburne, faced with a situation where he must, where he might have to kill somebody, is deeply torn and he suffers agonizingly through the aftermath. I think that um, I agree with Ebert and one of the things I do love about this film is, and you've both kind of mentioned this, but it's worth sort of unpacking a little bit more, is um, how much it blows up these tropes, right? And how much it makes these characters three-dimensional um, so that you're really feeling the repercussions of these things. You're really feeling how torn they are. Um, there's a shitty version of this movie, you know, a much more kind of like B version of this film, which has been made many times over. Um and it's a testament to everyone involved that this does not step on those landmines. It's, it's I, pretty amazing. I cannot believe this is an April film. Like, there's yeah. no, like, reason it shouldn't be released in April. But this, I watched this <laughs> and I was like, this is, like, mid-August. This is the kind of movie you want to see in a multiplex in sure. the middle of August when it's too hot to do anything else. And you go in you watch this and you're just, like, blown away by it. Sure. Yeah, April's, like, all wrong. I don't know. And, <laughs> that's my note to new line cinema in 1992 yeah (laughs) i i you know you you bring this up and i think it's worth talking about for a second which is the new line cinema of it all right i mean new line which is a company you know was referred to as the you know the house that freddie built it was a a company that really was sort of you know uh, its currency was horror films um this is the third credit that mike deluca has um, and it becomes sort of the beginning of that transition. Um, 
94, you've got the mask, which is a big hit. You've got sort of the, the Jim Carrey stuff. And then obviously seven, which is sort of the really, that's the moment. Um, but it's, it is interesting that this film, as we speak of its layers and its intentionality and all these things, um, that it is one of the first, you know, substantive New Line movies. It is it is interesting in that respect. Um, this is a total tangent, but I wanted Please. to ask Robert how you feel about Seven. I recently rewatched it, and it feels like it, this movie I watched and was like, they're kind of in a weird conversation just because mm-hmm. there's this boomlet of movies that are like this urban landscape is a hellscape and you need to escape it. And both Seven and Deep Cover are saying different things and about black that. and white leads on top yeah. of everything else. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is yeah. true. Like, I'm wondering how, 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 how you feel about Seven. What a great topic. <laughs> well, I love Seven. Uh, but great. yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I think that they also, both films kind of, uh, they, they treat law enforcement in the same way, right? These um, cops who are trying to stop this crime from happening, and but ultimately they become stained and enveloped by this crime. Um, and then, it, it, you know, it, I mean, of course, in Seven, there's a big difference between, uh, uh, there is a difference between Brad Pitt and, and um, not Brad Pitt. Um, God, who, why am I blanking out with Morgan Seven? Freeman? Morgan Freeman, J- Kevin Spacey. No, yes, yes, it is Brad Pitt in Seven, right? It is. Why did I like? Why did I like memory wipe him from Seven? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there is a big, there is a difference between Brad Pitt and, of course, Kevin Spacey, right? Sure. I mean, Brad Pitt's not cutting off people's heads, right? <laughs> um, um, but he still becomes like in some way morally permanently and morally scarred in the same way that in a similar way that Lauren Fishburne's character becomes morally scarred by the end where he comes in hoping that he can stop this thing but ultimately he finds out that there's a part of his soul that is this thing um and so yeah i mean i can definitely see i i agree i can see why they're in conversation not the film i would think of emily listen <laughs> i just i ju- just rewatched seven for a project sure. my wife and i are working on and sure. i was like i really am struck by how much dna of that movie is in everything now it just is yes Yes. We're yeah. influential in a way I hadn't thought about. I, I honestly, uh, thinking about that now, the Morgan Freeman character and um, Detective Taft in mm-hmm. this yes, movie yes, kind yes. of feel like they're in conversation. Also, Clarence Williams the yes. third. Uh, who was from the Mod Squad? Indeed. I, this is this is a this is a sidebar, but like this movie uses casting deep cover to be clear so well. Yes, it's a lot of like people who are from TV, and if you're going to the movies in '92, you probably know them. You know, like like Clarence Williams is from the Mod Squad. Uh, Gregory Sierra is is from uh, Barney Miller. Like, there's mm-hmm. Charles Martin Smith has been in ten billion things. Yeah, there's somebody yeah. here who was the the old woman at the place that that uh, Stevens moves into is from <laughs> Bewitched. Like, <laughs> it's a movie that's like using faces you probably know from like other contexts in ways that sort of help root you. I think this movie is incredibly well cast beyond the two leads, which is like not always the case with sort of movies at this budget level at this point in time. I think that speaks also to Bill Duke's, you yeah. know, history in television, right? Directing, acting in TV, all those sort of things as well. Mm-hmm. But, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you. You also get, no, no, no. You also get the, the opening scene, which kind of makes us a Christmas noir with Glenn <laughs> Turman. <laughs> <laughs> Like Glenn Glenn Turman is like one of the, the great unheralded like black actors of all time. Just a brilliant character actor. Um, 
And like to think about like the gap between this and like say Cooley High, <laughs> um, it was like very fascinating. But like the way that he like, I think the he, I think you know, every, every single time I watch this film, I've seen Deep Cover now, I think five or six times. Every single time I watch this film, I think the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, this opening's a little hokey. I'm not, not sure if I totally. Kind of buy. It's almost a little, a tad overwrought. Um, but each time I watch it, I I vibe with it more, and I understand like the I see more of the the emotional grounding that it really gives the Lawrence Fishburne character. And of course, in terms of like him trying not to be his father, but ultimately in some way becoming his father by the end. But also just how hard of the job Glenn Turman has that he has one scene to really land the entire kind of moral ethos of this film and do it in such a like a heartbreaking way i you know like the the his death scene the way he just kind of fades off it's just it's gorgeous it's it's brilliant physical acting um and yeah it's i think in a, in a lesser actor's hands it would be hokey in a lesser actor's hands it would be overwrought and but there's there's great depth and tragedy to it um, and I think knowing, seeing him in a film, say like Cooley High, which is really also about these young black men trying to evade their area and seeing him as an older black man now being someone who has been, who couldn't escape. Um, I think that that adds an extra layer of heartbreak in terms of like the casting, casting the the, the actor, our perception of the actor to the role. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, I mean, not to be superficial about this, but there is a part of me as well that I, I always find scenes of of parents doing drugs in front of their kids to be just really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there, there's something about that scene of, you know what I mean? This kid obviously know Russell knows that he, that his father shouldn't be doing this. The father is saying, don't do this. Like, this is bad. Don't do this. I, there's just something always very kind of, um, I just always kind of breaks my heart, and and you see it also deeper in the film as well when you have the the character, the neighbor of Russell's and her her son. Um, forgive me, I'm forgetting the character's name off the top of my head now. Um, but um, yeah, oh God, what's her name? It doesn't matter. Uh, but I'll find I mean, it, it. Does I'll find yeah, it? I have the Wikipedia it. page open right um, now. Thank you for that, Emily. <laughs> um, I I feel as though there's this sort of there's a little bit of a mirror going on there. I think obviously there's the little boy that James, that I believe Russell adopts at the end of the film, um, which feels like a mirror to when he was younger and trying Mm -hmm. to be a better father figure, all that kind of stuff. But again, like all of these things could seem super tropey and could feel kind of, but they, but this film imbues them with so much life that I, I just was really blown away by it. Yeah. 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 And also, oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you no, off. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, it also starts at the most, like, kind of um, in a film about the perils of capitalism inflicting black and brown people in urban areas. It begins on the most extreme, the most capitalistic holiday. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, Glenn Turm, I mean, basically, he's. I think that the heartbreak of it is, of course, that he does drugs in front of his kids, but the heartbreak of it is that, like, he clearly has spent all his money on drugs. Yes. And yet he's still trying to rob this, this, uh, this quarter store, um, 
uh, or liquor store. And in order to get money for Christmas for his kids so he can still particip- participate in this like kind of like capitalistic treadmill, right? Um, and so like, it, I think it really kind of, from the very beginning in terms of, of in terms of the themes of the film really gets you, starts from the very extreme of capitalism. And then by the end, we get to the same kind of extreme in terms of like how much capitalism has broken this man's soul. I've forgotten what we're talking about, but were you thinking of the character Belinda? Like, uh, yes, I was. Oh, yes, yeah. thank you. I Great. appreciate it. There we thank did you. it. I found it. I um, found no, it. But to your, why to your I keep point, the Wikipedia Robert, open. I appreciate <laughs> that. I, 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 to, to sort of piggyback on what you're saying, um, Robert, I feel like so much of this movie is about systems uh, that are broken. Uh, if it's the political system, uh, even if it's the the drug trade, all these like it's it's all fucked, right? And it's like it's all lose lose, and you're all just kind of doing the best you can under the circumstances. And I do feel like, um, not to say that his father is succeeding within these systems, I don't think he is, but it is showing how sort of uh, how everyone is trying in their own way to kind of get by, and it feels like, I mean, even the 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 question ultimately that's posited at the end of the film is just like yeah i've got this money but like i'm kind of fucked no matter what i do with it and like yeah. what would you do with it like i i think that that's i think it's a brilliant brilliant way to end the film he, lay, he lays the blood-soaked money on this grave and it kind of blows away in the wind yeah. it's it's ephemeral yeah. uh yeah. and then he walks away and we get one last shot of him and it pans up to like a figure of an angel covered in bird shit and i'm like what the <laughs> fuck is this movie it's so good <laughs> i mean it really is it, it's and part of it too is like the the you were talking robert about the opening but prior to the opening you have this the energy of those opening credits that amazing music cue this movie's just so propulsive on top of everything else and it it's and I know that maybe this isn't important, but I think it is, but like, it's a really cool movie. Like mm-hmm. it's a movie that's also exuding with like, isn't this cool. Right. Which I think is also part of the paradox of it. Right. Like, I think that part of it is about Lawrence Fishburne's character is kind of awesome. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Other than he kind of is. He's hot. That's, that's <laughs> it's just objectively hot. This whole film. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all the fits he has yeah. the best fits in this film i mean like oh i was i was watching um the i was watching a film with my partner mariah mariah e gates um, um earlier today and to see the last shot where he's like walking out of the frame i looked at her i was like does anyone ever look cooler walking out of a frame <laughs> i mean that's like I sent a, I took a picture of, uh, of Lawrence Fisher that I sent to Emily as I was watching it, which is uh, before he kills the, um, the other drug dealer in the bathroom, he is wearing the most plunging quote unquote shirt. You could, you could, it was barely covering any of his chest. And I was just like this, look at this guy. Like it's fucking amazing. He pulls that off. That's, okay. that's not easy. It's yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm I'm in awe of of all the performances in this movie, but also just like, yeah, once he gets the facial hair, I just got to return to that point. It's just something else. But I think it's also worth noting, too, that like I'm watching this film, obviously knowing these iconic performances from these two guys that are that have already happened. Right. And I watch this film and I'm just like, yeah, 
like anyone else could play Morpheus, right? Like, is there any, like, obviously it had to be Lawrence Fishburne. He's the coolest fucking guy in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting how, like, this is his first leading role, if I'm not mistaken. Like, this is the first, like, he, is it? Or maybe I'm wrong, Robert. Uh, I mean, school I'm, days, I think. Sure, I, sure, I would, sure, sure. Yeah, I would probably count him as the lead in school days. Um, okay. Just because I think we're seeing the, the HBCU through his eyes. But uh, but yeah, this is I mean, this is basically a second leading role. I mean, he had like parts in Boys in the Hood, of course, and um, sure. uh, Color Purple. Um, but yeah, I think this is like I think we could call this like his first like clear lead. I mean, in a in basically a two hander. And it's like and, it is and, really like, clearly sure. pitched as like his movie star right. breakout in a way that some of those others weren't. Especially mm-hmm. like you look at the poster and like it's Lawrence Fishburne's head, right? Like the majority of this is like look at this guy. Um, and then right after this, what's love got to do with it? He's playing Ike Turner. And, and it sort of, it feels like then he's just a leading man, right? Like th- then basically from that point on um, it, it's also, so I wanted to talk just a, for a second about um, the Jeff Goldblum of it all, because he's in a lot of movies before mm-hmm. this. Um, and the fly is in 86. And obviously he's the lead of that. But it doesn't really stick in a weird way. Like it's it, like it's like I think it's that thing like Robert England where he could never play other parts because he's right, so right, covered right. in makeup in the plot. You kind of don't get to know him. Like obviously he's in the right. first half of that movie, but then mm-hmm. like the parts of his performance that are the most impressive, he's covered under goop. And I love the goop to be clear, but great goop, great goop. Yeah, I mean it is. It's like you know the fly happens, but then it's like. Earth Girls Are Easy, where he's sort of one of an ensemble, um, a very strange movie. Um, you know, he's in The Tall Guy, where he's the lead, but it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't movie really, that really sticks. And it's really not until this that he gets another big sort of juicy two-hander. And then Jurassic Park is obviously in 93, and then, you know, then, then it's off to the races, and he's kind of doing whatever he wants from that point on. One thing about these guys is they have both been around a lot longer than people think they have, because they Correct. break through in the early 90s, but like, Lawrence Fishburne's in fucking Apocalypse Now. He's been wow. working yep. since he was 11. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Goldblum is in Nashville. It's yes. like they have had just, <laughs> yes. careers, have, and then in the early 90s, America yep. was like, it's time for these two guys to be stars, and I don't disagree. Thanks, America. <laughs> but it is it is amazing. <laughs> they both have like 15 to 20 years almost of like credits prior to them breaking out it's it's pretty crazy um fishburn is one of those guys that i mean what are the best voices ever like especially when you get to have this much vo and you're just like give me more voiceover from lawrence fishburn he should be just narrating everything yeah yeah i uh i i kept thinking about how good he is in the tv series hannibal yes watching this Mm. there's just a quality to him Mm mm-hmm Obviously, Hollywood's over-reliance on law enforcement figures is a whole thing, but mm. I kind of feel like Lawrence Fishburne should be, like, the only person who plays law enforcement figures because he's, like, <laughs> so good. He's so good at capturing sure. the nuances. Like, he's a good guy in Hannibal in a way that he isn't here, but he still is capturing, like, the ways that if you are actually a good person working in this job, the weight of it gets to you so much that you eventually just become, like, terminally sad all the time and this movie he just like kind of gives up on the system in a way that i i found really refreshing is this your favorite lawrence fishburne performance robert would you say 
Oh, that's huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I think it's I think it's definitely the film where he has the greatest emotional complexity. I mean, of course, he breaks out on what's love got to do with it, but I mean, Ike Turner's basically kind of a one note monster that he he kind of makes into something more, um, Lawrence. Um, and then School Days, he's um, he's fantastic in School Days, of course. But um, I think it's this and Othello. I think those are I think those are kind of like the two, like in terms of like the pinnacle of like Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne and using the whole the entire mystique of Lawrence Fishburne because he's just like every single time he like glances at you, I, the way that he's able the way he's able to the, play emotionally with his eyes, um, which is on full display here where. You know, he's either when when he's when he's flirting with the art dealer, and then when he has his his neighbor trying to sell her his, her kid to sell him his kid her kid, um, and like the way he's able to deploy his eyes and really like I think you, most for the most part like his lower face is usually pretty frozen. Um, he just lets his eyes project kind of every kind of interiority to him. Um, I think it's 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 certainly this film and Othello that gives them like the, the biggest emotional range and the most like fruitful characters who are complex on the page and he's not having to do more than what's on the page. I um I really love him. I'm I think both of those are better than this performance, but I really love him in Matrix Reloaded, the second one, oh. where he has to play. He's playing a crisis of faith. But he also has to play a guy who doesn't think he's capable of having a crisis of faith. It really gives him a lot of notes to play in the way that the first and third movies don't as much. Um, uh, I really liked uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen in the, the fourth one. But I would I just would love to see. Yeah, it would have been nice to have him back. back. I, yeah. I, you know, speaking of his eyes and, and just his what he can convey without words. I was thinking about the the scene when he has to kill the other drug dealer in the bathroom and it's so messy and clumsy and you can tell that he doesn't really want to do this. And it, it, it's, it, it really felt so human and, and, and sad and kind of um, I would argue kind of the moment when the whole thing kind of gets away from him. And by that, I mean the character losing his, compass entirely um it's it's a i thought it was a fantastic scene and it, it, it i also think that this movie has sort of bursts of violence that are very intentional and very effective you know thinking about like eddie's beating at uh, on the pool table um even just even the father's killing in the beginning i was surprised by like how much blood there was um uh when um uh taft dies at the end as well like the the blood is just very realistic um which i found really powerful i uh i i want to talk a little bit about taft because he's please i'm low-key your favorite character he's my favorite character but like he he's like <laughs> when he first comes into the movie there's an energy to him where you're like is this going to be kind of a comedic like sure. performance and he is willing to lean into like kind of the ridiculousness of this like guy who's such a straight arrow that you know everybody on the force like has mm -hmm. jokes about him behind his back but as the movie goes on he becomes like the one stable thing you can rely on he'll come into a scene and just be like you're making the wrong choice and as the movie goes on you're like you know what he is but also is there a right choice officer taft 
I submit that there is not. Um, and like by the time he's like charging this huge drug deal by himself, like you really have come to feel for this guy and believe in him as like the closest thing the movie has to a moral compass outside of Gopher, of course. We're going to talk about Gopher because Gopher, need, we need to unpack Gopher. But yeah, I, talk, I, I talk do, Taft some more. Yeah. I want to talk Taft for a second because I do feel like um, we've talked about this. We talked about this a little bit, but like, TV actors versus movie actors. Um, and, and sometimes there's a real sense of, of comfort that comes with a TV actor that just feels like someone who understands the role and, and you have a relationship with to some degree as, a, as an audience member. And I feel like there's something about Clarence in this film that just feels very uh, lived in and, and, and comforting. And um, part of it is the fact that he has this father figure kind of component to him um, in terms of his relationship with Russell, especially near the end. Um, would you this agree is, that there's a father thing there? Just just to quickly point to this, there, yeah. there's also a connection between Terman and, uh, and him in the casting because they're sure. both figures you know a lot from a lot of, like, they've played a lot of characters in films, they've been in a lot of sure. black films uh, from black filmmakers and, and, and that system. And, like, there's a link between them already in your brain that sort of like sure. lets you get to that father figure uh, section, but go ahead. That's that's yeah. Yeah. That's interesting for me. <laughs> it's interesting for me. Cause I think the first thing I saw Clarence in was not the mob squad. It was actually in tales from the food. Oh sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which follows a couple years after this. And he's so theatrical in tales from the hood. And so like seeing him in this and in like, Almost like, a, I mean, it's like there is kind of like a similar wavelength to the two characters, um, in in terms of like I think they're like there's their earnestness, and both I think characters in Deep Cover and Tales from the Hood are also very religious characters, deeply religious characters too, um, and so like the first time I saw Clarence Williams, I kind of thought it was going to be a big like I th- I th- it, it, I think yeah. you're right, it does kind of like initially lulls you into thinking that this might be a comedic performance Mm -hmm. i think especially if you're coming into this retrospectively seeing the roles that he would take later um yeah but he's so like earnest and believes so much that like him as this one black man in this system can change everything um and yet he doesn't know that the, the the system is really what he's fighting against and not these individuals He's so earnest in that belief that you he is the moral censor of this film, and you do feel for him as he's like lying on the ground and he's like spitting blood as he's saying the Lord's Prayer. I mean, <laughs> I mean, but it's it's like you know, like I, I think it's like a very like touching scene, especially because of course we see this Lawrence or um uh, I'm forgetting I'm blanking on his character's name um. But uh, we, uh, Russell, Russell, we see Russell, yeah, l- losing the second father figure and a father figure who even as he's lying on the ground, like still fully believes in this, like this religious mission that he has to, to, to somehow, you know, um, purify the black community from, from, from quote unquote drug war that's happening. Yeah. I think what's, what's neat about this movie is that it never entirely buys into Taft's way of thinking but it buys yeah. into the idea that having a moral compass is probably a good thing and like that like <laughs> is a thing that like keeps it 
keeps him from either lapsing into parody or becoming like a scold in a way that the movie couldn't bear. Like it's a really deft bit of performance, especially, but also I think the script is very smart on how it uses that character. You also have sort of this, cause his, and forgive me if I got this wrong, because I was, this is the only part of this film that I got a little bit confused by, if I'm being honest, his partner was an informant. Am I correct? Hernandez, which is mm. Taft's partner is working with the drug dealers. Am I correct in that assessment? I think so. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That is is intentionally a little bit muddy. Yeah. It's a little, yeah. So there there is kind of, because like he, his partner fucks up a bust at one point intentionally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I only bring this up just because it does feel like, it, it does feel like for, like that hurts Taft. Like, it does feel as though he uh, really believed in his partner as well. Like, the Taft doesn't even have the, 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 the comfort of knowing his partner is on the up and up, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but that being said, um, I want to talk Gopher for a second here, because I feel like we need to talk about Gopher. Yes. Um, this is Phil. Uh, this is our new feature, Emily's Gopher Corner. Gopher um, Corner. <laughs> it's, it's Emily's new podcast. We need to talk about Gopher. <laughs> I Gopher to me is in a different movie. I love him, but I don't understand what movie he's in. Listen, I just like I watched this movie. The very first scene he's in, I was like, I love that this movie has kind of a gay Danny DeVito. Like that's great. And then I realized I knew him from other things. So I felt bad for sure. calling him that, but like sure. that is very much pitched. Just like, well, you know, <laughs> he's, he's kind of the comic relief. The thing, one of the things I love about this movie is the tiny yeah. concessions it makes to being a movie. It is mostly very interested in presenting this very dark nihilistic view mm-hmm. of the way that the drug war has just like utterly hollowed out America in sure. like every aspect, but occasionally it'll just be like, here's a here's a here's a a shootout here's a movie thing and gopher is one of those things there's no reason he should be there he doesn't really like you're kind of like what's he doing and then at the end of the movie he's like working with stevens and you're like great i love this for him gopher is 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 a perfect character yes he belongs to a different movie but like it's important that he be there to just be like this like force of like right i am watching a thing a that movie. is meant to be entertaining, you know, sure. basically. I just, I, I, here's what I need to know. How did Gopher get into this business? Because Gopher <laughs> doesn't seem built for the criminal underworld. <laughs> We're not doing, they're doing slap hands. And Gopher's like, oh no. <laughs> <I'm swatting." laughs> this is what it's I like, mean. In terms of like a, a scale of violence of one to 10, like the slap hand scene begins as like a two, mm-hmm. and he's just like so squeamish. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, I guess we're supposed to kind of like assume that he has seen Barbosa do this before and that he knows where this is going to end oh. up, but it's like, but he's also seen him do this before, so why isn't he like desensitized to it? And instead, he still has like some kind of like little like soul to him. He does when he screams Felix. You really feel like it's hurting him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's um. It's just, I, and to your point, Emily, just before I wanted to say, when he shows up and he's the one sitting in the back of the co- uh, convertible as they pull up, like he's, it, it, I was just like, Gopher, why are you here? What are you doing? But anyway, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a very classic 
okay, who's still alive? You know, that kind of thing that like is either who's still alive or who isn't like so burned that they can't appear in a session like this. And it's basically just gopher. And you're like, well, of course it's gopher. (laughs) And anyway, he eventually is elected to the United States Senate and uh, actually has some really bad policies. And like, people don't like, we don't talk about that part of gopher's career, but this is clearly the high point of his life. I mean, it's incredible, is what it is. I, I, I mean, it's. I really go- thought he yeah. was Charles Nelson Riley for like a little oh, bit. I, okay. who yeah. I love, but yeah, like he's okay. he's he is this. Yeah, it shouldn't work. The thing about this movie is it makes so many choices that shouldn't work, and they all do. And I feel like I haven't seen Bill Duke's debut, but I feel that way also about Sister Act Two, which has come up a lot on this podcast. It really talked well, about because we did lot. cover Sister Act. We so covered there, Sister I mean, Act, but it seems like it's come up in several unrelated episodes. Um, at least People this one, it. yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's a great yeah. movie, but yeah, I feel like that's another movie that like is always making some interesting choices and yes. they don't all work in that movie, but they're all yeah. like cool. I was trying to, not, I was just thinking about my, in my head, like how out of place Gopher is. And then I started kind of like imagining him at the end of other noirs. Like, could you imagine him at the end of like LA confidential, like <laughs> just a certain Gopher at the end of LA confidential. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's. First of all, the actor who plays him, I was trying to place him, and then Emily told me that he's in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which makes sense. Um, he has a very, very specific disposition, let's just put it that way, and, and line delivery. I, I just, I want to know who else auditioned for Gopher, right? Like, was this, was this like, oh, this is, this, I, it's just a very interesting personification of a character that I'm just like, I don't really get it, but I'm into it. I think it's an interesting, this movie has a lot of um, casual homophobia, as you'd expect out of this world. Like, I don't think it's like a a choice that is like made out of um, malice. It's a choice that's made out of accurate depiction of the world. There's a lot of racial slurs as well, um, occasionally delivered by white people in ways that are like horrifying and Mm -hmm. to the point. And I felt similarly about every time someone said the F slur in this movie. It's, it's, it's There's a horrifying quality to it that I think the movie understands. And I think Gopher, who is very queer coded, you know, mm-hmm. is like there is kind of a depiction of like, you know, what is it like to survive as a queer person in this world? Because it's a, it's a topic the movie can't actually tackle, but it mm-hmm. feels like that performance is there to be like, here's a little just nugget of to leave you thinking about this question. <clears throat> Yeah, I think the um particularly how this fits in Bill Duke's career since you briefly mentioned Sister Act too. Um when I think about something like um the killing um the killing floor, um mm-hmm. which is a film that I think I think in from, from the killing floor to this into including Sister Act too, is that Bill Duke is very interested in the limits and potentiality of integration. And what does that mean when black and white people, um, 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 queer people, um, brown people, you know, like, and 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 different religions are, are kind of thrown together, and um, that's why I think that, that that line about like there are no blacks, there are no whites, there's no Hispanics, there's only poor and the rich is so fascinating, um, because I think outside of Sister Act too, which is I think really totally about the potentiality of integration both this and the killing floor are about really about its limits and how far can it take you and what are the realities of this world that everyone's contending with what is the the the, the racial implications um 
the uh, sexual implications um, and um, does, how does this, how do systems kind of put barriers that around integration that makes the idea of integration or fantasy of integration, or we, we fantasize it of it as, as nearly impossible in a world that um, doesn't really care about it. It cares basically about the dollar and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, which is what makes like sister act two so fascinating is that it, it, he he gives into it. Um, I, I actually interviewed Bill Duke, um, let's see this time last year actually, about deep cover. And he talked about how early in his life, he of course grew up with segregation, right? But some of the biggest breaks that he had in his life actually came from white people. And he talked about like the tension between those thoughts, right? Like, oh, you know, like I've been taught that white people are evil, but then these white people help me. And trying to kind of cohere those two different things, right? Of between like, there's clear racism, but then there's this maybe integration is something that is possible on a person-to-person -person level. And I think all, particularly in the, the early part of his career, he's really always revisiting that kind of tension between the like systematic idea of white people and then the, on the personal level of white people. Yeah. 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 And I love the way this movie tackles that because you know, racism is a systemic force. Any any prejudice in our society is systemic, whether it's misogyny or transphobia or whatever. And but then like there is this element of person to person communication where you can really get to know someone and still participate in deeply prejudiced, deeply horrible systems and yet be like, but I like that guy. Therefore, I am not X, you know, so I think this movie like the relationship between Fishburne and Goldblum in this movie captures that really beautifully uh and and i'm uh similarly to the relationship between uh, to return to one false move the relationship between bill paxton and the, the lead actress in that that film um it's it's uh whose name i've blanked on because i don't have the wikipedia page open um i will, but I will find it right now. He, but yeah it's it's this it's this complicated dance both of these movies do and i think noir is the perfect genre to examine those questions because noir is so interested in the ways that the system is constantly rigged against everybody cinda williams was the cinda williams in, mm. uh, in one false move but I, I i agree with you emily and I, I think it's also interesting there's that moment in the film where um <clears throat> where uh fishburne goes to pick up uh jeff goldblum who's had some sort of illicit affair with a black woman of some sort and they have this conversation where he's like why do i love having sex with black women so much and leonard fishburne is like because uh, of the whole slave thing and and he doesn't want to like even acknowledge that and it's kind of like almost like Jeff Goldblum plays it off as a joke and it continues down the conversation as Jeff Goldblum continues to joke and Lawrence Fishburne continues to take it very seriously yeah. and I, I think it's just a really fascinating kind of it's not a throwaway scene by any means but the fact that it's a conversation walking away from us getting quieter and quieter as it happens i think is very intentional like there is something very serious about this and people do not really want to challenge this idea yeah yeah it's uh it feels like a scene that was in the screenplay and then bill duke's like eh, you know we can just let that go <laughs> off let that trail there. off down yeah. down the road <laughs> it, it is it's interesting though because it, it is sort of um, and it does speak to sort of one false move as well, Emily, in the relationship between Paxton and, and Cinda as well, like of of just that like 
the, the the dichotomy and the the unfortunate reality of the way that some white people can't really you know grapple with these things it, it's just yeah. it's it is interesting and i think this movie does a, a great job of sort of um i think that goldblum's character his descent into sort of his downward spiral is tragic but also just so kind of the, the way it needs to be i mean i, I it feels Anyway, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Michael Tolkien, the, sure. the co-screenwriter of this, who's mm-hmm. having a great who's having a great run at this he point? Is. In, time. in ninety-one, he directs and writes *The Rapture*, which is one of my favorite the movies movie. about religion. Movie. So good. Uh, and then this year, he has *The Player* and *Deep Cover*, and obviously yep. *The Player*, he gets so much acclaim for. Sure. He's written Based a lot of book. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. Kidding. He's written a lot of neo-noirs. *The Player* has noirish aspects, even though it's it's a comedy in most ways. It just feels very weird to me that he co-wrote this movie. It's just like, there's just something about it. it I'm like, okay, sure. (laughs) I also don't know the other writer. Um, I mean, by that, I mean, I don't know his work. Henry Bean. Uh, Henry Bean. uh, Also a novelist. um, uh, And he wrote a bunch of, he wrote a bunch of neo-noirs as well. So I guess that's just like the thing. Yeah. And this was, was, it, it should be said for what it's worth. This was originally going to be a sequel to internal affairs. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> um, so take that for what it's worth. What? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, that is a rid- original sort of iteration, if you will. I think it started as that. And then I think Tolkien probably comes in and does the rewrite, and that's where we are. But, yeah, Tolkien, having, having a moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's fascinating to think of the writer of Deep Impact putting a whole lot of n-words in script yes <laughs> correct he did do the he did write the movie a kind of underrated film changing lanes you, ever, you guys ever see that movie oh, the yeah. ben affleck yeah yes uh, yes samuel jackson movie yeah yes i actually kind of recently rewatched that like i think like three months ago i at my day job they had it on in the background i was like is it changing lanes <laughs> I, thought, I haven't thought about this movie in like it, it, it is fascinating to your point robert that this guy really wants to kind of dig into racial disparities that exist in america um but he does seem to kind of want to do that i mean changing lanes and this movie are both sort of grappling with those ideas i think uh changing lanes is i i i haven't seen that in so long and it's 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 okay you know it's pretty mm-hmm. good sure um it's it an above really... average uh you know it is really the difference. Like it's directed by the guy who made Notting Hill, uh, Correct. who's, who's a, a, a white, <laughs> who's a white guy from South Africa, which is another country that obviously sure. has a long history of racial mm-hmm. problems, racism Indeed. at an institutional level. And that the, really the difference between that movie and this movie is just like the perspective of the director. And I'm always kind of loath to give too much Sure. to the auteur theory but sure. like it, it, you could watch these two movies in a double feature and have a, a reasonably good time and still be like okay yeah i see what the director really brings to sure. a movie like this uh it should be said that tolkien's last credit as of now is uh, nine so everyone's favorite movie that totally doesn't exist oh um, phil you have missed that he wrote the making oh, of the godfather miniseries the oh, offer shit i missed and that yeah. also yeah. escape at yeah. danamora he's apparently just like gone off to just do things <laughs> for the parent i mean listen escape at danamora company is, who does is good. amazing things 
he's also written some Ray Donovan. Uh, yeah, I, I missed his TV credits. Yes, but Nine uh, is a movie that I uh, hope to talk with you about at some point, Emily, possibly in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Anything's it's, possible. So uh, it's just, it's time to announce in the new year, we're changing this to podcast like it's Nine, and we're just talking about Nine. <laughs> it's just a podcast about <laughs> It's a podcast for nobody. Any movie with nine in the title, or that is the ninth in a franchise, yeah, it's it's also counts. But mostly, we talk about the two thousand nine major motion picture nine. (laughs) (laughs) I I do think though, um, to get back to deep cover, uh, that there's there's kind of this. I mean, there is a popiness to this movie as well, and I feel like the the most kind of. I don't want to say funny or unintentionally funny because that's not really true. But like Barbosa's death did make me laugh because it's, oh, it's so funny. Dummy <laughs> that just gets fucking hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. But the editing in that scene yes. is so tight. I mean, it's so, so, so tight. And some of it is meant to be funny. I mean, like, Lawrence Fishburne does that like high pitch scream, you know, <laughs> and like Jeff Goldblum just seems like he's riffing on, sh- you know, like he starts yeah. riffing on shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> that whole sequence was like, this is crazy. What is happening right now? I will say this for that sequence: you absolutely can follow the geography of everything that's happening. absolutely, and maybe yes. some of that is I live like a mile from the shooting location, so I've been there all the time. I've, I've sure. driven through that tunnel, but also. Sure it is so clear and who's in relation to who and where. And like, you know, uh, in this, in this era where people frequently complain about action sequences where you can't understand what's happening. Um, I often am like, well, you know, you get the story just, but then you see a one like this and you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh yes, absolutely. There is a difference between when everything's super clear from a filmmaking perspective. And when it's just like kind of a, a muddle. Bill Duke said, I think Bill Duke told me that he he lives he only lives a couple blocks from that tunnel. Mm. Like he he knows that tunnel intimately. Like yeah. he's lived there almost by there his, almost his entire uh time he's lived in LA. Um and you can you can feel it. Like he knows the space and he knows how to play within space and how um objects play within space, not just you know, in terms of like the car itself, but um Kind of like the, the 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 emotionality and like how the actors play with um the distance of the tunnel and the maneuvers within the tunnel. I mean it's 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 a very well well crafted scene that is at once both funny with the dummy. <laughs> Yeah. But also like so well shot, like that that like low angle shot where you see like the red lighting behind uh yeah. Jeff Goldblum and he's somehow like eating like gumbo shrimp in hell or something like that. <laughs> it's it's got a very like manic tension to it. I don't mean to suggest that it's like laughable because it's not, but it is the, maybe the most dialed up part of the movie in terms mm-hmm. of just everything feeling really manic which adds a tension and a fear to like, you just don't really know what's going to happen. And you also know that Barbosa's fate is tied to them. Right. So like whatever happens to this guy is going to happen tenfold onto them. So like, there is kind of that, um, that tension that plays into it too. I think there's also the, sorry to cut you off. No, there's also, I just want to give props to James T. Morris, who was playing the character of Ivy, the rival, the, the rival drug dealer who is yes. persistently quoting Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. 
Uh, he is great. And he's another decision in this movie that, in this movie about like, you know, like these humanized characters, that he is like the most over the top cliche in the world and it should not work. And like, he's clearly there to kind of add some kind of like comedic, like kind of, you know, lightness to it. And yet it does worse. Like he's, that, that actor is so incredible in this role. And he is full committal, to, to full commitment to every single line he is saying. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and also just like the, I mean, and this again, not to say that this is a trope, but it is within the conscious of these movies, which is these people don't care about murder, right? Like the fear of people that will sort of kill because why not type of thing like it it has this he feels so like i think about the the moment when he kills um russell's uh i don't know uh, drug dealer i mean i'm trying to think of like what her component is into his sort of but like his work one of his partners i guess and he feels that obviously this is when he has to kill ivy but there's just something about this the joy to some degree that ivy gets from killing that is also just deeply upsetting um yeah yeah and i think partly the, the reason that character works of course because of the actor uh, james t morris but also i mean it's that it's that bathroom scene where even though this character is so clearly over the top and i think actually is like the cliche of what if you're a white person who's never seen a black drug dealer, this is the cliche you have in your head. Mm-hmm. And yet when Lawrence Fishburne confronts him, when Russell confronts him, he sees him purely as a human that he has to murder. Yep. And so you have like the two different, the two different audiences within the film, right? You have the, this character that's clearly playing to uh, the, to the stereotypes that white people have about black drug dealers. And then you have the actual reality in which the way that Lawrence Fishburne's character sees this man, that he, this is a real life that he is taking. The thing I look for a lot in a movie as uh, someone who writes fiction in various contexts is every character feels like they have a point of view on the action, feels like they have an interiority, feels like they have a humanity to them. And this movie sails over that bar. Like there are one scene characters in this movie where you're like, yeah, if this movie was from that person's perspective, it maybe wouldn't be as good, but it would be like an interesting movie. Like even, even Mrs. G in the, the, the the boarding house or whatever, whatever you like Mm -hmm. is just like, you know, what if this movie's about her? What a great idea. Sounds good. Like everybody in this movie feels like a person. And it's a movie in a genre where you don't really need to do that to work. Like you can just have it be a bunch of people be cannon fodder, but this movie is very interested in all the people who die. Um, I have one other thing I want to say, but Phil, please go ahead. I was just going to say that um, I I wanted to kind of unpack the Carver character for a second, because it does feel like at this point in the film, this moment of um, when Russell realizes he's a pawn in 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 a kind of a bigger game, um, and that sort of the the political justice system, if you will, is is broken, which is, I imagine, something he probably had an inkling of as he got into it, but that's neither here nor there. I do feel like Carver's character of sort of this, basically explaining that sort of the State Department has decided that uh, Gallegos is, all of these characters, all of these sort of people within the drug cartel could be helpful to them in some form or another. 
Um, and it's sort of the moment when Russell kind of abandons his undercover status, quits being a cop, what have you. I just think the Carver character, which is ultimately like the beginning of this movie of just of uh, Charles Martin Smith, who's a great actor who I've loved him in many things, is just such a deplorable character in this movie, like so loathsome. Um, it, it's it's again kind of playing against type a little bit because usually plays like the nice kind of nebbishy, you know, whatever guy. He usually plays this... Never Cry Wolf. That's just I'm always <laughs> like, there's Never Cry Wolf. Look at that. Or, or the character from The Untouchables is the one that I often yeah. think of. But yeah. yes. Um, and to see him, I mean, quite frankly, just say the N word several times right in this first scene, I was I, I found it very unsettling. And obviously, he was doing it to get a rise out of people to see what sort of emotions it would elicit at the same time, there, there's the weaponization the, of that word is yeah, just, is, is deeply the, upsetting. There's also a certain kind of white authority figure who thinks they can say a yes. slur as like a power play or like a way to like test boundaries. That is, you know who that kind of guy is Yes, with yes. every relationship in his life. He's yep. always pushing your buttons because he thinks it's how he like figure something out about yes. himself but he really just likes having power and yep. he's a petty little tyrant he is god <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of uh, charles martin smith in this robert oh you know i think he is um i mean i think he's wonderful in this as as wonderful as you can be in such a deplorable character <laughs> sure, sure. um but yeah i mean i think you know the like I, you know, think, thinking back to like, of course, uh, to 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 the drug war, right? Where this film is very interested in like the stereotypes that we have of people who are in this war, right? Black drug dealers are the problem. We need to take them out. The the good commanding cops and and DA DEA agents are, are trying to clean up the streets, and and that's how you get stuff that leads to like the crime bill, right? Um, and so, like, to see a film that, like, fully and forcefully uses, shows this character for what they probably are in real life as, like, I mean, because you go through this movie and you start realizing that the biggest drug dealer in this is actually the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Smith, I think, plays that well in terms of being literally the, the emblematic of kind of, like, everything that we think of when it comes to the um, uh, hypocrisy, right, of the system that is America. Um, we have them um, using um, uh, race in order to drive wedges into communities. We see him, uh, you know, of course, saying that he wants to clean up the Black community when he when he has the, the lecture with Russell about, do you know what a crack baby looks like? Mm -hmm. You know, and plays on... In, in different ways, actually, if you think about him and um, and Clarence, right, they're both playing on his emotions as a black man, right, and using children to do that. Yeah. And then to see Clarence, who's very earnest, and of course is earnest for a system that he somewhat believes in, right, and matching that to um to Charles Martin Smith's character Carver, right, who is very horrible in the way that he uses it and very manipulative in the way that he uses black bodies mostly to um to get to his own end game which really involves him 
getting more power as a white man within this system while he he says him and Lauren and Russell are going to be a team, but we know that's not the case. <laughs> that's never the case. Um, it's 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 very fascinating the the how the film, as I think Emily keeps saying, it could work on one beat. Every single one of these characters works on multiple beats and is emblematic of 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 multiple um, either inequities within the system or are emblematic of the ways of the multiple ways that the system can inflict damage upon people. Speaking of character actors who become directors like Bill Duke, we would be remiss not to mention uh, Charles Martin Smith's directorial career, which is perfect. Uh, He made Air Bud, for instance. Uh, He made both Dolphin Tales. His most recent film is A Christmas Gift from Bob, which is about a cat who visits you on Christmas. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I think that movie was made for you. Emily. I think so. It came out in the pandemic. If I had discovered it at that point in time, I would have watched it like seven times and just like cried the whole time. That's <laughs> so a good thing I didn't. I do, <laughs> I do think of everything you're saying is true, Robert, in terms of like what this character personifies within mm-hmm. the context of the film. Um, I also just feel as though... Um, it's really good casting because he is just this like kind of s- sniveling little man, right? Like mm-hmm. there is just something very kind of like his physical presence, the way that he is always kind of um, trying to seem really big and powerful. I think about the the sort of comeuppance that gets at the end of the film, where essentially he tries to use Betty as uh I guess basically Leverage. manipulates Betty, yeah, as 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 yeah, um, to sort of fuck over Russell, and then Russell uses some tape, some audio tape that got some videotape that got recorded of this mm-hmm. whole thing. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a Deus Ex Machina, but I do think that like it works. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention, which I kind of loved because I thought it was sort of absurd, is in the big sort of um, before the big shootout at the end the moment when David is trying to convince these drug dealers to invest in his synthetic drug, a drug that I'm amazed doesn't already exist. I don't know, but whatever. Um, And he has a prospectus. Like he literally has like documents and a whole like pitch doc (laughs) for them. And I'm just like, what's happening? I love it. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, they probably do have to have marketing plans for their new drugs. (laughs) Like that's probably a thing they have to think about. I just love know? that some graphic designers like, I guess I'm making this pitch deck for this uh, synthetic drug. <laughs> and it's just like a bunch of photos of like Goldblum. You know, he got like some glamour shots taken. hundred percent. hundred percent. I want to just talk for a second about the very, we talked a little bit about it, but like the very last moment that this movie kind of ends on is, um, Basically, uh, uh, Russell and James, the little boy that he's adopted because Belinda, Belinda kind of disappears from the movie a little bit. And there's a little bit of sort of, I would have liked one more scene of her between kind of her trying to sell her kid. And then I want to say like 45 minutes to an hour later, she shows up dead. Um, it would have been nice to have just seen a little, again, this is nitpicky, but it would have been nice to, to see one more scene with her. Well, yes, this is, this is, this is my one problem with this movie. Yeah. Um, it's not a problem per se. It is within yeah. the film's worldview. Sure. Um, but this is a movie that doesn't have a lot of room for women. 
Like they are on the edges of the story. Yeah. They have things to do. But Betty is such a formulaic character yeah. compared to a lot of the people in this movie. Like there's a world in which she's more of a femme fatale and it feels like they sure. faint at that a little bit, but they're, they're just, the movie kind of um, has women characters, but it is about these relationships between men. And that is fine. Like uh, as, as people who listen to this podcast, know, I will come down hard on a movie. If it just has like women there to be like the objects of men's affection. I mean, this movie, I think for instance, mm -hmm, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. this movie like has, (laughs) this movie has a larger like worldview, but within that larger worldview, it does seem like it's sort of like, yeah, women are there as like pawns in a weird way. And I think that's intentional and I'm fine with it, but I'm also like, I wish some of these women had the same level of interiority that like every male character does. Absolutely. I mean, I do think Betty, I agree with you, Emily, I'm, uh, but I, I, I do think that performance wise, mm, she's great. Uh, yeah, she's mm. great. And I do think that um, there does seem to be, she does have um, uh, control of her destiny to some degree. Right. Like I do like the fact that, you know, when she has that scene with Lawrence Fishburne, when she's like, are you still in the business or do we have a shot of being a couple because she does not want to be with him if he's still in the business. I do like the fact that there's a level of independence that exists with her character. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you, Emily, that I kind of wish that she um, wasn't just kind of a a hot lady that's there, you know, but but, but as I was saying that you do have this, uh, this, um, what was her character's name again, Emily? My apologies. Belinda? Belinda? See, see Belinda. what I, this is my, you're making my point for me. I, I know. She doesn't <laughs> seem like a Belinda is kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But, yeah. But that scene, I do want to just talk about that scene very quickly. There's this scene where she's clearly high and she's talking to Lawrence Fishburne and the 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 manic sort of, switch i think it's a really great performance the way she's kind of ping-ponging between this an obvious kind of wanting to be there for her son and at the same time clearly having a serious drug habit that she doesn't know how to kick um there's just a lot in that scene that i thought was really rich and was really well performed and directed that i missed her i guess is what it comes down to and i wish that yeah. we got one more scene with her um but what did, what did you think of that performance robert or for or that character um yeah i mean i think you know emily of course is correct about the um about betty right where it feels like she's supposed to be a femme fatale and in some ways of course she you know the mask scene right is so important because this is a film entirely about people putting on masks right for being in the role of performance and she fulfills you know the film in that the film in that kind of like thematic fashion where we we see her as like the cool collected art dealer and then we see her and she is this person who's like no like this i i I got my check i just want to go i don't you know like i'm actually an innocent you know um but i do wish we got more with her in terms of belinda you know it's like kind of like um uh not not to always bring every black film to moonlight (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> if you think about the character in Moonlight, uh, the mother character uh, who's played by um, uh, Naomi um, Harris. Naomi Harris. Yeah, we go. Boom. Couldn't come to my mind. But if you think about like that character, Naomi Harris, right? The way that you get like, the full range of her as a mother, you know, she begins to film somewhat clean, somewhat 
thoughtful of her son, Sharon, and then we see the descent into her drug habit. And of course, we see her come out of it on the other end, but we see the full level of that descent and how much that seeing that humanizes her. And I agree that we are missing that from this film. Um, and of course, Moonlight proved that you could do that with a supporting character. So it's not like this has to be her in order to do that. We we really are kind of like missing one scene to fully make her into like a fully realized person. Um, but I think the performances, in, in, particularly in the scene where she's trying to sell her son, is really, really fantastic. I was thinking, <laughs> um, I think what Samuel Jackson recently did an interview talking about like, um, his his roles as the clockhead and, and jungle fever as compared to uh Chris Rock and New Jack City as Pookie. Well, who is like the most like stereotypical like crackhead in the world? And you see like he's just kind of like he always has like this really like manic type. But with her, I think her modulations are, are are much better, of course, because I think she is she is bouncing off the walls. There is some lot what she's trying to do where she first she plays it in terms of okay maybe i can maybe i can sell my body then she plays sell my son and if she goes from like you know like uh from 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 angry um to almost like you know like um I'm losing my words right now. It's okay. No worries. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> from, from from angry to pliant to you know like and so there's a lot there's a lot of like emotions that she's playing with in that scene. Even though that I, I on the page, I bet you it only reads as one emotion, right? You know, sure. she still is able to find these kind of nooks and crannies to show the internal conflict going on within this woman who at once needs money for her next fix but also now doesn't believe in herself as a mother, but still wants to take care of her kid. Um, and so in some ways she sees a guy who's like, might be a good father figure. <laughs> this could be a win-win for both of us. Sure. Um, forgive me, just one quick second. My doorbell is ringing. I'll be two seconds. I'll be right back. Wow. Okay. All right, guys. This is the part <laughs> where I just ask unrelated questions yeah sister act two let's talk sister act two so, tell, tell me yeah. what you like about sister act two. Oh, you know what i i actually like sister act two more than the first sister Act. me too and i yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah no and i i mean the one of the primary reasons is because miss lauren hill yes. is so fantastic mm-hmm. in that movie yeah. um but also i you know even though i i like know that like what bill duke has created is somewhat of a fantasy world mm-hmm. yeah. in, terms of, in terms of this poor like integrated church like catholic school in san francisco <laughs> yeah i do like the earnestness in it and i think yeah. he captures those like scenes the like the 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 scenes of like like the joyful joyful scene really really well and i also just think like there's like smarter kind of like comedic element to this whereas like the first one and i don't get me wrong i like Whoopi goldberg in the first one but there is just kind of like there's this like odd minstrel element to the first one mm-hmm. that like always kind of rubs me the wrong way um whereas the second one i think she is 
so comfortable within her star persona, so comfortable within this character and with this group of kids. And there's just this really good give and go between her and Lauren Hill. And God, why didn't Lauren Hill make more movies? Yeah. <laughs> oh, like, why didn't she? She's an absolute star for the first second you see her. You're like, this this woman should be like have like five Oscars lined up on a like on a mantle somewhere. Um, and that ending is just um and plus how many films how many films do you see that reference Rilke? My films. <laughs> I, I just like am imagining if you work at the Touchstone Company, the Di- Walt Disney Corporation, and you're like, we need a director, Sister Act Two, we got to get this out soon because we got Whoopi, we got this window with Whoopi, and you see Deep Cover, and you're like, that's our guy, because like they, you're right, they do have like a lot of thematic things in common, but like this movie's like kind of a nihilistic like meditation, sure. and that movie's like a real fantasy of like. What could the world look like if we really like, you know, yeah. valued each other? <clears throat> um, so as as we wrap up, we're gonna we do a rating uh system on this podcast at the end of our episodes. Uh, I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on the movie we're covering next week, Robert. But um I came into this so we do two sort of a pre-podcast and a post-podcast rating as to whether or not the conversation might have uh, swayed you one or one way or the other. I mean, I came into this film at an 82, and I, I think I'm basically like I'm at a maybe an 85 now from zero to 99. Um, what about you, Emily? Where are you? Uh, I came in at 96. I'm going to a 97. I think wow. this is, I okay. think this is, uh, I, I have my, I have my little ranking on Letterboxd of like yeah. all the movies we've watched for this podcast. Sure. And I'm surprised at how much of my top 10 is movies made by people who traditionally weren't allowed to make movies in the studio system, who kind of had to find a way or like the, this movie in Poison Ivy, and I was just gonna say I really Poison fucking Ivy. loved, <laughs> is just like, there's this interesting examination of American power dynamics that a lot of the movies that were acclaimed at the time just haven't survived as well. You know, there's like Howard's End and Last of the Mohicans that are still great, but yeah. And also the queer phobia scale. Oh, yeah. Technically, it's like a five because there is a lot of epsilers, but I feel like they're I feel like they're they're used with intentionality and like just the presence of Gopher knocks that down at least a point. So, <laughs> the presence of Gopher, Emily's new book that's coming My out go- the, on the Gopher scale. This is a twelve. <laughs> uh, Robert, where are you? Zero to ninety nine on this movie. I I would say before um um i would say i was at a 97 um i'm at a 98 this movie gets sure. better with every watch i've seen like i rewatched it i realized i rewatched it earlier today this morning and like you would think this would be like something you would get up in the morning to watch damn it plays at any time of the day <laughs> it plays at any time of the day just have this with a cup of coffee and just let it wake you up <laughs> <laughs> Like oh. it's it's a ninety eight. It gets better on every watch. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again uh, very soon. Um, next week we have BJ and Harmony Colangelo, co-hosts of the podcast. This ends at prom. They came on to talk with us about John Woo's Hard Boiled. Do you have thoughts about that, Robert? By any chance? <laughs> I love Hard Boiled so much. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so much. I mean, truly one of the great action movies of all time. Um, incredible. I mean, just, yeah, incredible. Like, I mean, every film, every action film that I watch, I'm just like, why isn't this hard-boiled? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I 
Like, it, it, I mean, like, it's funny that, like, John Wick has become, like, the touchstone. And I do love John Wick. Don't get me wrong. But for me, every single time, I'm like, hard is right there. Why Why don't Why don't people just copy it and just not even change a thing? Just remake it. Just keep remaking it. Yeah. Just reshooting it shot for shot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just keep doing it. And another movie with some real hotties in it. Like, just, oh, just yeah. some gorgeous people just in that movie. Uh, and also, uh, we recorded that at a time when my baby was still pretty young. And uh, mm-hmm. that movie has some fun baby stuff in it. So. <laughs> It does have. It's got a whole nursery sequence. It's yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Robert, do you, I mean, on the John Woo scale, I'm assuming Hard Boiled is probably one of your tops, right? Do you have other John Woo favorites or? Oh, um, let's see. Uh, the Killer, of course. Sure. Um, I love The Killer. Um, uh, Are you a face-off fan? Who doesn't? Yeah, I, I was about to say it. Yes. <laughs> who doesn't love face-off? I recently rewatched face-off. I think last year, because... Keith's book on um, Nicolas Cage um, to promote it. He came to the music. He did a, a double feature at the music box of Matchstick Men and Face Off. And let me tell you, those two films play better together than you think. <laughs> Matchstick Men is underrated. That movie's legit. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So no, I, I love love Face Off. I love like living the the two extremes of of manic energy and the way that Travolta tries to play Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage tries to play Travolta and really you just see that they're the same actor. <laughs> why, why did it take so long for any of us to see that these are the same actor with almost like the same kind of like range in terms of like emotion and range in terms of campiness. Like Absolutely. brilliant. Yeah, it is. It, it it we talked about this on the episode, but you know, obviously, John Woo's American films aren't nearly as strong as his uh, as his home country films. But I I I, I hope Mission we get Impossible more. 2's there. Mission Impossible it, 2's it, there it too. Is, it is there. I, I I can't say I ride hard for Mission Impossible 2, but I mean, listen to each their own. But. <laughs> Uh, Robert, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking with us today. This was an absolute joy. I hope you'll come back in the future and talk with us. Where can uh, people find your work and find your your yes. your wonderful self? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you can usually, I mean, you can follow me on um, the artist formerly known as Twitter, um, <laughs> xat812filmreviews. Um, you can also follow me on Letterboxd at the same handle and um uh, you can also follow me on Substack at the, the same handle. Um, I every month I do a Substack that um, a newsletter that has basically everything that I've written, everything that I've appeared on. And so, if you wanted to keep track of my work, that is literally the simplest way. It's always all in one place, at least once a month. Uh, and people can read you. All, all your writing is is found there. Yeah, all my writing is found there. As okay. you probably know, I write for a lot of. <laughs> Yeah, I'm <laughs> usually all over the place. Uh, but my my home base in terms of outlets is usually rodreeper.com and the New York Times. Fantastic. Um, well, I hope you have a good time at the New York Film Festival. Um, I hope it isn't too taxing. And and again, thank you so so much. This was an absolute blast. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. Oh, thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Yeah.